Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm talking with Diane Barnes. After surviving the catastrophe inspiring her show, My Stroke of Luck, Diane discovered improvisation. Yes, and the mantra of improv opened an alternate universe for this, hmm, show me the evidence, skeptic scientist. Barnes' first solo performance shared her experience negotiating the hurdles to single-parent adoption. Audience response galvanized her with the power of storytelling and launched her new career. She left the practice of medicine in 2010. Now a Meisner-trained actor, Barnes also completed the American Conservatory Theater's Summer Training Congress and studied with Anna DeVere Smith, Anne Randolph, Keith Johnstone, and the Dell Art International School of Physical Theater. She's appeared at Ross Valley Players, College of Marin, Studio One, Bats Improv, and Pan Theater. A New York City transplant and third-generation physician, she's a graduate of Stanford University and Yale University School of Medicine and is board certified in diagnostic radiology. Welcome, Diane. Well, welcome. Thank you very much. I'm pleased to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Pleased to have you. And, of course, um, I had the good fortune that you are local to me and your play is currently running at the Marsh Theater. I love that little theater. A wonderful little place to see fresh work. And your play was wonderful. I saw it, I saw it just last weekend. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. Marsh is a very special place. I mean, they call themselves a breeding ground for solo performance and new performance, and it really, really is. I, I came from the ground up uh, with my show uh, with the director, David Ford, at the Marsh. Um, so that's how I developed the show. So you know, I, I, ha- I have a, one of my kids is in, in theater and film, and I know how rare it is to have places where you can develop your work. You know, it's sort of a bring your full-on thing kind of industry. Um, And so that is very precious, I'm sure, to lots of people. But also as a a place to go and really be intimate with theater, I think it's very wonderful, Mm -hmm. too, as an audience Mm -hmm. member. So wonderful. Um, you know, the seat, the largest is 110 seats, I think. And so it's just always an intimate experience between the performer and the audience. Immediate. And, and of course, I, I experienced your play as very intimate. You were talking about intimate things in an intimate way. So it all fit together. Why don't we share with the audience, if you could... Um, a little bit about the play itself, how it came about. Um, obviously, the the name implies the subject, um, yeah. that, that you had a stroke and that that changed your life. But uh, could you put in, uh, tell a little bigger story about that? Oh, sure. Um, 
the interesting thing is when I started to write, I had no idea what I was writing. Um, I began, the first thing I ever wrote was a, a story about negotiating the hurdles to single-parent adoption. And that led to my beginning to unpack the story of my son having some difficulties in his teenage years. And the more I wrote, the more I realized, no, what we're writing about is how a family is impacted when the parent, in my case, the only parent, is severely impaired. And so I began that exploration of uh, what happened to me when I had the stroke and how it affected the family. And, um, and so it, it went from there. And it was the, the um, process of unpacking the story um, was extremely healing uh, because there were things I had not looked at um, or questioned before mm. I tried to find a way to talk about them. Mm. Um, so and and then I can, I can also imagine, Diane, that... Um, I know I, I do quite a bit of writing, and when I'm writing about um, more painful moments, I do relive them. So there's that part, too. And, of course, that is, to my mind, healing and also at times painful. So you, you had to face up to things there, yes? Yes, absolutely. I, I, there were days I was typing and crying, <laughs> uh-huh. and um, because, you know, the, the reliving... Some of the moments were so difficult and trying to get memories of things that I had no clear memories. Because when you're brain damaged, part of what happens is you don't lay down the memories or you don't have the good Rolodex to recover the memories. (laughs) I'm not sure which it is. Um, Probably both. Um, And so things, but what happened is one key thing would come back and a whole nother a whole constellation of things would come back, but they came back in different ways, you know. They didn't, for instance, a memory. It, it, it was as if the memory had happened to someone else, and uh. I was looking at it from new eyes. Um, so that was very fascinating, and um, it, it, part of what contributed to my totally different outlook on life now. You know, I was not a glass-half-full kind of gal before, and now I'm a cup run it over kind of gal. Um, and some of that was... <laughs> that's that's such, a, uh, such an amazing phrase. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it's, um, and, it's, uh, and it's so wonderful to be inside that ride, you know? It, um, yeah, it, 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 it's a funny turn of phrase, but it's, a, it's such a wonder. When I look back at my old thinking patterns, it's like, whoa. Whoa, I'm, mm. I just feel so blessed. You know, of course, I'm I'm fascinated with with um, the experience because I've had this experience too, and pretty much everyone I interview of of looking at something and honestly believing it would be the worst possible thing that could ever happen. And then somehow making something of it, which leads us to say what you just said, uh, yeah. you know, uh, so blessed. Yeah, it, it is. It, and it's amazing to me because, you know, I had 
all kinds of nightmares for things I didn't want to happen. This was probably so out far outside of my realm of possibility that I had never really thought about it. And it is totally something that I would not have wished on my worst enemy. And yet mm-hmm. it made my life so much better. Um, the st- yes, there were struggles. Yes, I went through some intensely. In fact, I've been speaking with a, a relative of mine who had um, a stroke recently. And um, I, it was, you know, it, it was a year and a half probably before I could talk and walk and remember well enough to even begin to see past the struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, uh Going through it, it's such an opportunity for, uh, so for rebirth, really. Um, you know, if, if rebirth, you that's, take, that's a big word. Nothing, it? And it's hard work, of course, it's hard work. It's very hard work. I mean, I didn't know the sink was the sink, and every day I'd be told that's the sink. And, but the next day I wouldn't remember what it was or exactly what it did. And, but I would have a vague memory of having been told before. Um, and so that kind of frustration and limitation, um, as, as one by one, you begin to get back your faculties. It's like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> almost, almost worse when it starts to come back, I would think, because if, uh, you know, based on the play, I would say you were not entirely aware what was missing at first. Right, right. That is true. And, and, and so I would imagine the painful moment is when you realize that you're, what you're communicating is not being understood. I could imagine yeah. that as a very, for, I'm a communicator, so of course I would, I would focus on that moment as very painful. And then I'm, I'm also thinking about your kids who one day had a, um, a very logical, possibly linear, very scientific, um, very on top of it mom. And mm-hmm. the next day had a mom who couldn't communicate and was struggling to uh, take care of yourself, let alone, the, you know, that must have been such a radical uh, experience for them. Yes. Yes, had to be. Of course, at that time, I had no idea. Of no course. Concept, as I couldn't see beyond the minute. Um, but yes, I, I, and there's no question that the struggles of both boys um, in that time period were due to the radical change in me um, and the absence of any... Uh, competent parent I have to assume because they were somewhere for at at least that week that there were people in your life who looked after them a bit yes Uh, yes well Takeshi was at camp that week um, because the boys went to camp in weeks in sequence so that there'd be less competition and each one could be him or herself uh without the comparison to siblings. So Takeshi went that week, um, and Logan was home, but we had 
several neighbors who um very close in the street and so he would spend time with them and that's where he was eating and you know playing and so he had a semblance of a normal life uh without a curfew i guess <laughs> <laughs> without without that watchful eye that only a parent <laughs> does about their about their i'm I'm staying with my grandchildren right now. I find my eye is very different as a grandparent than a parent. So um, I'm sure that, that the neighbor's eye was different than than you as the parent. Yes. And that might have even been fun for a while. You know, mm. until, you sure. know it, it, fun with, with a back backstage worry, you know, a worry in the back. But fun, you know, hanging out like camp. Um, Getting away with stuff. <laughs> Also, and of course, the younger mind, one was none the wiser because he was off in his week at camp. Um, yes. But then when he came home, and 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 my sister did pick him up and bring him home. Um, and uh, but then when he came home, he came home to a changed person, a changed mother. Yeah. Um, I, you know, my, my my kids were two and a half and fourteen when my first wife died, and so when I was. Watching the play and li- and listening to you talk about your kids, I was thinking about them, of course, um, and how indivisible it is. I can't really say this created that, but um, what I do think is that they're, um, well, for instance, they're the ones that friends go to when they're when they're hurting. Um, yeah. There's a certain emotional intelligence that I think does relate to coming through difficulty in some way. Do you find that with your kids? Yes. Yes. And and I'm um, certainly since well, after working on the play and then after them seeing the play um there's so much more emotional intelligence all around. I mean, we connect so much better. Um and and I think we each have a much clearer understanding of what the other was going through in this time. Yeah. Um, and so we have a much more open um, and easy relationship with, with them both, with all three of us, actually, now. I feel you're saying something so important right now because um, obviously I, I don't believe that you know, great stuff comes out of bad stuff just automatically. You know, you have to really go through it and and feel it, and you have to grieve, right? Um, yeah. In order to get to the other end. So the idea that um, this very very painful time that all of you experienced and it couldn't quite be dealt with at the time, but it can now that it's never too late for that. That moves me a great right. deal. Exactly. And the interesting thing is I thought, you know, they were okay. They each had support systems. My older son ended up in therapeutic boarding school, and I went down many times to meet with the people who worked with him. But it took us doing it, him to me, and him, his brother to me, um, as I developed the play, and I would ask Logan about, uh, you know, how how things happened for him, or um, and it was over a period of months of unpacking that that I realized neither one of us had really processed the whole thing, um, mm. and we really needed to do that. Um, and of course, 
the play wouldn't have existed without their help um, and their point of view. Um, but it was, you know, you think you've put it to rest um, because we moved on. And I had grieved many times of some of my losses, although I um, danced with joy for many of my gains. Um, but it really took the us sitting down one-on-one and talking about it for all of us to really find a new path um, with each mm-hmm. other and in the world. And um, I saw huge changes in both boys after that. Um, That's amazing. And the other thing that I believe, you know, I, I'm a therapist uh, when I'm not a radio host, and uh, I, I believe we do work with certain important experiences our whole life, but what we're prepared to do with them is different at different times. Um, so one way I hear that is that your family is ready for a piece of work that you weren't ready for earlier. And, you know, there may be other times like that. Um, yes. I, I find there are still times I revisit certain experiences and make something new out of them. Mm-hmm. I, I actually, I, I love that. I mean, the fact that I could feel these memories come up and I could look at them from 360 degrees. I mean, it was, uh, it was things would happen, you know, a, a, a memory of a certain episode that I had written down as one way in my brain. And all yes. of a sudden, it turns, tilt the world, tilt the world, tilt the world. Oh, really? <laughs> really? There's another angle on that, huh? <laughs> yes. And it, oh. it, I, it's just a beautiful thing. Uh, you know, it, the, the fluidity um, and the ease that comes with that kind of perspective shift is just a thing of beauty. We're getting near, right. to, our, uh, near to our first break, and I, um, I want to really pick up on that afterwards. You know, you went from possibly the least interactive practice of medicine, you know, reading, <laughs> uh, right? <laughs> um, yep. You don't even sit maybe with the patient maybe typically. Maybe pathology has one up on us. <laughs> what, what, what does? Pathology. Pathology. You know, looking at, uh, at uh, slides of specimens and doing autopsies. That's yes, probably yes, the most exactly. And you went from that to what is such an interactive and uh, an um, emotionally rich uh, way of coming at the world in the in this um, in this play, at least, and I'm assuming elsewhere. And I really yeah. want to talk about that um, th- that pathway from one to the other. Was it sudden, or did it did it kind of evolve over time? Let's talk about that when we get back. All right. And listeners, you can find links to my website and social media at Good Grief. And you can like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, all of that good stuff. You can find Diane Barnes at www.dianebarnes415.com. You can also, if you happen to be in the Bay Area, uh, get tickets to her show, My Stroke of Luck, which runs through December 9th, 2017 at the Marsh, marsh.org, themarsh.org. Do I have mm-hmm. that right? Great. Yes. Be back soon.
Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. There is a difference in health and wellness programs. There can be mainstream programs, and then there is something extra. That something extra is called tips to keep you healthy, happy, and motivated with your host, Kristen Harper. If you want to hear some behind-the-scenes talk radio when it comes to health and wellness, the why as well as the how, be sure to tune in each week. This show will inspire you to be healthy and happy for life, as well as become the best version of yourself. Listen Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Diane Barnes about her play, My Stroke of Luck. And before the break, Diane, uh, I was wanting really to kind of dive into how you got from, obviously there was an interruption to your life as a physician, um, but then I know you did go back to that work, and somehow over time... um, evolved very much out of it to a really different place. And I wondered if you could yes. just share, because uh, I'm sort of intent on on not shortchanging the processes that we go through to change, <laughs> because mm-hmm. they're usually pretty difficult um, before they're yeah. great. And um, yeah. I like to share that part too, just the ins and outs of, of um, what changed right away when you had the stroke, what what kind of um, came clearer as you recovered and walked through through that experience? 
Well, you know, what changed right away is, uh, you know, the brain damage. Um, uh, so uh, not only did I have the, no ability to communicate effectively for some time, um, but I had major trouble with memory, with discriminating sounds. So if I went into a room and three people were talking in different corners, I would hear every conversation at the same level, and it was like noise. It was just like a roar in my head all the time. Uh. Um, and seeing things, same colors, and things were so bright. And so some of that was beautiful because there's such physical beauty in so much of our part of California um, and in, in, in the art world and in human beings. Um, but um, it, it was overwhelming. It was like fl- I was flooded all the time. Mm. And um, it was very, very challenging. And one, I had made jewelry. I'd been a silversmith for about 10 years. And um, one of my therapists suggested before um, trying much else to just go back to the jewelry studio and try to work, figure out how much capacity I had for following directions, uh, doing things step by step, how much patience, tolerance, etc. In, in a venue or an, an arena where I would not hurt anyone except myself, of course, if I burned myself with the torch or so, uh, or cut myself with the saw instead of cutting the silver. But, you know, where the stakes were fairly low, but I could mm. get a sense of my skills and ability to tolerate things. And um, that was tremendously difficult because, you know, number one, the conversation issues, the noise issues, and doing things step by step. Sometimes we would have a demonstration and um, an explanation of what to do, and then I had to have the same explanation for me personally while everyone else went back to work. Um, and I knew how I was before. <laughs> and so sure. It, it, that know, part I'm of your brain did education and, and, and struggling yeah. um, uh-huh. and, and making, and my visual perception was not the same. So it was a lot of that for about, for a year, and I also did rehab with a speech therapist and... Uh, occupational therapist and um, the disabled students program at the College of Marin had a laboratory with a lot of computer and computer remediation uh, for brain injury and learning challenges of various sorts um, and as well as a number of workbooks and so I spent as many hours as I could be awake doing that um, and it was, I was in tears most days, not as much in the jewelry lab, but certainly in the cognitive lab at the College of Marin, because, um, for instance, one of the games was a little bit like a city. You build a city, and um, you have to be able to recognize the block, like you build a block, not a city. For me, it was a block. You have to be able to recognize the house that you've put on the east side of the street from the west side of the street, which I could not do. And, of course, you could manipulate it on the computer so you could turn it around and see it. You could put your finger on it, roll it around, but it didn't look like the same building. And I still have some of that loss. In other words, if I'm approaching a corner from the north side and the south side, I may not recognize it as the same place I was previously. Uh, yeah. So, you know, it was a matter of, of, of step-by-step um, relearning things that I had known how to do 
And I did get back to work. I started back just before. If you didn't start back to work within one year, you were put out on long-term disability forever. Bye. Bye. And Mm -hmm. um, so I got back two hours, two days a week by one year. And I was very, very slow, um, but good, still good and still accurate, uh, which, you know, you didn't know because you can double-check. Which is very, that's very... uh, when you were talking about that in the play, I was a little bit surprised because there were so many challenges, like the building challenge you were just remarking on, but but you, that must have been so ingrained or yeah. that part of your brain was not hurt because you could do that. I found that really amazing. Yeah, yeah it was. You know, for the first four months, they had somebody double read everything I read which was a problem because it's a very busy workplace. And the fact that I was working slower was a problem. The fact that we used to do, you know, six things at once. You know, you'd be doing one thing, the phone would be ringing, somebody would be standing waiting for your opinion. Uh, you know, even going to the bathroom in the hospital, you'd come out, there three people waiting for, you know, for you right. to do something. Um, a patient or every x-ray is a patient. So even if it's not the human being standing there, it's the case. Um, and um, I was only able to do one thing at once. In other words, this multitasking, which isn't really multitasking, it's really rapidly, sequentially changing your attention, I could not do. So I had mm-hmm. a, a quiet private office where I did my readings. And, um, and for four months, someone read absolutely every case I read, and there were no problems, no mistakes, So, which is probably a better track record than some of the other people. <laughs> so, <laughs> Perhaps um, they should all slow down a bit, huh? <laughs> yes, it probably about slow and because probably my fear, knowing that if I made any error that I would be, you know, that it was, it, the consequences were likely that I'd be not kept. So the fear factor, who knows what. And, and, I, and I was good and that part of my brain was probably not affected. Um, anyway, but so I got back to work, and by the end of, uh, there were certain landmarks. You had to be back to six hours by such and such time. Anyway, I made those, but they were came at a huge expense because it, I would come home after six hours of working and sleep for the rest of the day and night, you know. So yeah. I was effectively not a parent, not, not really there as a parent. And after doing that for a couple of years, I realized, and and in the meantime, of course, Logan, we had the challenges with Logan. And um, so I was by myself and and I realized that this was just not the way I wanted to to live and work anymore. Um, And so I looked forward to the time, you know, at certain ages, um, you can be offered a package to take an early retirement, you know, and so I did. And um, before I did, I knew that I needed to find something else to do, that, that I was different and that I wanted to do something, but I had no idea what. And the Stanford Continuing Ed calendar came, the catalog came, and I flipped through it, and there was a class called Show Up for Your Life, Using the Tools of Improv to Improve Your Life. And uh, taught by a woman who um, was very instrumental in forming the improv program and the Stanford improvisers um, named uh, Patricia Ryan Madsen. And I thought, well, if I don't show up for my life now, when will I? I mean, this Mm. class is meant for me. And um, (laughs) so I started that class. And the very same quarter, there was another continuing ed class um, 
uh, offered by the head of Kairos Learning, who um, had been at the Stanford Career Center for a decade or so. And it was called Compass Journey, uh, and it was essentially a class in transitioning and rethinking your life, kind of career transitioning. Mm. And um, the improv was just eye-opening. I mean, the, this whole, the yes and concept, which is that you take whatever offer you're given and add something to it. And I felt like, okay, I've been given this new mind, this new space, this new way of being in the world. Um, let's see where this one goes. And then in the uh, Compass Journey class, you, it was a, there was a Grove uh, Press, I think it's Grove, uh, that um, had a workbook. And in the workbook, you sort of chart your ups and downs of your life and what was going on and what were the positives and what were the negatives there. You do a wheel of, your, of how you spend your time how many hours, you know, so you take a pie shape and how many hours of the day you spend doing various things. And then you do the same thing with how much satisfaction you get out of those places that you're spending your time. So you get this, a very, an externalized view of a lot of what's gone on with you, your life, your things that have mattered. Um, There's a little milestone uh, chart that you fill out. And over that, I got the sense that the improv was what I wanted to do more of and um, set, up, set myself up in a different way. So I started doing improv, and then an improv coach uh, at Pan Theater, Ralph Thomas, said, I'm about to direct a play, and I think you could do this. Would you be in my play? And I did it, and I loved it, and I thought, well... Uh, most people who do this have learned something about acting, so I started taking acting classes. And one thing led to another, and ultimately to a solo performance class where I did a, uh, did a piece about the, you know, the adoption. And um, someone came up to me and said, oh my God, you're telling my story. She had tears in her eyes. She hugged me tighter than any stranger has ever hugged me. She said, you've got to find David Ford because you've got to keep telling stories. And I, you know, several and several other people came up to me, really touched. Um, and um, what I realized is, as a doctor, as a radiologist, I didn't touch lives that way. I mean, I did, but they didn't know it. You know, yes. in other words, and you didn't you get to feel the touching yourself. You didn't get yeah, to it's, feel it's, how you touch you know, someone's. Oh, I'm sorry, I can't. You didn't get to sorry, feel how to... you touched someone's life. It was theoretical. Yes. Right, exactly. You know that you've done a good job. You know that you've just saved, made yourself a, a great call or you, know, you made a diagnosis that nobody else had made or you know you've done a good job, but you never see the human impact of it. Mm-hmm. And here I was seeing human impact of something as simple as a small truth of mine. Um, and I liked that feeling. So one thing led to another, and when I found David Ford at the Marsh, uh, I started in classes, so there would be 10 or 12 of us, and we worked together for 10 weeks, reading our work to each other and sharing what resonated, what we'd like to hear more of, what was confusing, and, you know, a number of us developed shows, um, and some people just had one story they wanted to tell, and that was it. Um, 
but uh, the the life worked for me. I loved I loved it. And the solo community in in the Bay Area is just incredible, generous, talented, smart, sensitive, funny, wonderful mm-hmm. people. Um, and and we communicate through uh, open hearts, you know, which is yes. not what happens in the hospital so much. You know, the other that thing that I, answer, that I that, huh? <laughs> the other thing that occurs to me is this sense of overstimulation. You know, too much going on. Um, mm-hmm. I also hear that as sensitivity, being very alive. And so yeah. I could imagine that when you started, um, you know, creating these pieces and sharing them with people, I mean, it's pretty, it, a one-woman show is pretty quiet, right? <laughs> we weren't making any noise, <laughs> except a few yeah. laugh, laughing places. But, um, you know, that sensitivity, though, would help with feeling connected, I would think. I remember yeah. hearing... Um, uh, Jill Bolte Taylor, who also had a severe stroke um, mm-hmm. and did a TED talk about it, saying that in the hospital, you know, people people would come in and she felt immediately their energy, and yeah. she'd either feel very calm or or riled up. You know, that kind of sensitivity yeah. that we probably all have, but we mute. I could yeah. imagine I that helps you, and I think. I think there's something about left-brain people that have a left-brain stroke, too, so that more of your right brain takes over and has to come to the fore. And That's very interesting. You know, that was a huge blessing for me um, because, yes, I, things, I'm sensitive to things in different ways and um, have different sensitivities now. You know, I tend to see things more globally and more energetically than the linear scientific way I saw things before. And and what I hear, too, is intuitively, like you kind of found your way intuitively to the thing that you most wanted to do. But your brain was still active, like you chose some things to help you discover it that made sense and and all of that. But it But it feels mm-hmm. very intuitive when you talk about it. Yeah, it pretty was. It was a pretty organic process, you know. It was one door, one door open. Hey, what's the, let's go through this one, and hey, oh look at that. Let's. So it really felt like a process of doors opening, um, and my life opening, um, and I was just kind of going where they were opening, <laughs> you know. Um, it 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 makes me think about a parenting idea I have that we're kind of two parents, the one that, you know makes lunch and gets kids to school, makes sure they live and all of that. But then the mm-hmm. parent that shows kids kind of how to be grown-ups, your, your kids have yeah. gotten a, a really um, profound lesson on that, uh, how, to, how to come through a very difficult thing um, well and with, you yeah. know, some losses certainly, but gains that you appreciate. And I imagine they've got that in there in their cells from watching you go yes. through that. I'm sure. And and certainly for Logan, as he went through, you know, he, for him, Takeshi was in boarding school, so um, his loss was less acute and global than Logan's, who was living with me. Um, and so his, the changes that he went through um, certainly will stand him in good stead for the long term, you know. 
Mm-hmm. It was a huge gift to him um, to have those struggles and survive, you know, and, and thrive. Find your way through in some way yeah. or another. It's yeah. time for our second break. So we're going to uh, be gone for a few minutes and then come back and talk more. I'm particularly interested in the last segment to hear kind of um, where where this is going for you, what you what you imagine in your future. Of course, it always okay. changes as we get there, but uh, <laughs> just just want to hear more about that. And listeners, right. you can go to my website, weatheringgrief.com. You can go to the Good Grief Host page at Voice America. And to find Diane Barnes, you can go to www.dianebarnes415.com. Back soon. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Have you heard of nutritional balancing? Your body's biochemistry affects the mental, physical, and emotional aspects of your life. Many of the diseases we face are related to an imbalance of the mind, body, and spirit. Find out how to get everything back in line when you tune in to Healing Treasures of Wisdom with host Daniel Solomon. Learn how to heal yourself and your family every week. Listen Thursday mornings at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Do you find yourself caring for people in multiple generations? Are you exhausted, stressed, and overwhelmed? Instead of spending hours searching for resources and information, Dr. Merrill and her guests will provide you with practical, everyday information and solutions to help make your life easier. Tune into Caught Between Generations, Thursdays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm here with Diane Barnes, playwright and performer of the play My Stroke of Luck. And, uh, Diane, I really do want to hear about what you're envisioning going forward. I know you have the the show run until is it December ninth? Um, yes, through December ninth. Mm-hmm. And um, I know you're doing a couple of benefits involved with that too. Um, but then, yes. what do you see? What do you see after that? Um, well, at the moment, I am uh, I have an application into several festivals, theater festivals. 
um, and um, one of the, one would involve performances about a week's worth of performances and uh, another which would only be a one-off, uh, which is more typical. And um, I have been invited to perform my stroke of luck at two medical schools with a couple others in discussion. Uh, after my run off-Broadway in New York, um, where a number of uh, physicians came, many of my classmates from Yale Medical School. And, um, and so the idea of being able to do it for the medical community is really exciting. I've done it at stroke centers as well, and I've, uh, there are a couple of um, stroke uh, community education uh, conferences where I'm in discussions to do the show. So to me, that's very exciting. I um, mean, I'd also love to be able to travel it and take it to other cities. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm kind of just waiting to see how the schedule shakes out to, to the spring uh-huh. before I make any big plans. Um, just so I don't forget, you had mentioned that uh, the publisher of the workbook you worked with was a little different from oh, what yes. you said. Do you want to correct that uh-huh. so I yes, don't forget to correct compass. it? <laughs> yes, it's called The Personal Compass, and it's a workbook for visioning and goal setting, and it's the Grove Consultants International. So it's a, a very specialized company, the Grove Consultants International, and it's a it's a great workbook for transitioning and visioning visioning a new life for yourself, new life or career or anything. Yeah. So great, I've got that in. Correct. Um, so yeah. I I'm very intrigued by the idea of physicians watching the play because um, I wouldn't say based on the play that on a human to human level. Obviously, your colleagues supported you in checking out, checking out, you know, your work, making sure it was accurate and all of that. But I didn't get the sense that you got a lot of support there. Of course, there's the structure. For a mainly MD audience, um, I got several letters back over the course of a few months um, that 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 our, the way we treat each other in the hospital and the demands we have of each other and uh, the demands the profession has of us leads us to be much less than human in our interactions with each other and particularly with the injured and the ill um, or the people who are not, for whatever reason, uh, keeping up with the expectations. And so there was a lot of soul-searching and a lot of suggestions to the hospitals um, where these physicians were um, to how to make our practice more humane to each other. Um, And I think that's an important thing. Uh, I, I did not feel supported. And I think it's safe to say that many physicians who are impaired for whatever reason um, struggle, the, the ones who have cancer and miss work for treatments, it, 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 hum, it, more humanity within the hospital setting, I think, is important. And to the degree that one can put oneself inside the experience of a patient, and in my case, a patient who's also a doctor and whose knowledge somewhat compromises her care, um, uh, I think is is an interesting way um, to get a glimpse into that. 
Yes. There was a movie a long time ago called The Doctor, and it was about a doctor who who was diagnosed with cancer. And uh, I remember it quite vividly. I haven't been able to find it for years. It's probably out of print. But um, the the final scene was him um, starting a program uh, in the hospital where physicians had to put on um, hospital gowns and get in beds in a ward and uh, kind of be pretend patients as part of their training mm-hmm. um, because mm-hmm. he had learned so much from being on the other end of it. But we're yeah. also talking about um, any any systems that kind of uh, don't allow for self-care then make it hard to bring much care to others. Oh, that's You know, right. if you're, if you're it, working it, it, so, so hard. You mentioned Bolton, Taylor Bolton, um, uh, a little bit ago, and who wrote the book My Stroke of Insight and gave that TED Talk, which for about 10 years was the most watched TED Talk ever. Um, she now teaches empathy to medical students at Harvard. That's her job. That makes so much sense to me. To you, too? <laughs> so mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, and, I, and I imagine that your, uh, your play has that effect, because when you talked about the physician who... Uh, did the group for impaired physicians. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was like a, a a warm bath of water came into the room. You know, there was just, mm-hmm. it was so different at that moment to imagine you being supported in that way as a physician. Uh, yes. You know, and being seen as a human physician, I guess. Um, yes just seems like a terribly important thing so it must be rewarding to have that kind of impact around um, such a big a big issue it is and many hospitals don't have an impaired physician's support I mean they just feel like if you're impaired you don't need to be here um so that was, it was actually somewhat unusual that it was there. there. I mean, the Board of Medical Quality Assurance has a program for people who've gotten into big-time trouble with drugs or alcohol. But beyond that, there's um, really no, uh, nothing for, you know, for the, for the person who has heart disease and can't quite uh, keep up at the pace they kept up with or, you know, bipolar and, 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 relationships suffer. There are so many um, ways that we do not allow physicians, we as physicians working in a hospital environment, don't really allow for the humanity of our fellows. Because um, mm. humanity includes sickness and in health. You know? Absolutely. It comes to everybody, even physicians at some point. Yes. Um, yes. Do, you, do you think... You know, I have this idea, not being a medical person, that some people go into medicine out of, all probably out of compassion, but some to kind of um, fix things and others to maybe not quite as much to be with people and do their best. <laughs> um, but I wonder how much um, a physician getting sick is sort of an insult to the idea of, of um, cure, you know, making yeah. everything come out right. Um, yeah, it's and challenging. Challenging, totally challenging juxtaposition, huh? And and we also need to have a certain degree of um, 
you know, to be able to, you have to be able to function when the person is bleeding out, right? You have yes. to be able to, to detach and do what's necessary to save the life. And whether you're a surgeon or whether you're an emergency doc or internist, on some level, you hit this every day. You know, even as a radiologist, you're looking at images of people who won't be here next month, you know? Yes. You're making diagnoses of things that are going to change, radically change people's lives. Um, and so there is a certain uh, distance and self-protection that is required. Um, you know, it starts in medical school. You know, when you start with your cadaver, you, in- you get introduced to your cadaver. You go in this room, and all of a sudden they roll back the, the lids, and there are 50 cadavers, naked cadavers on, on the table. And one of those mm-hmm. is going to be yours for the next six months um, to dissect. So there's a whole law, a whole process of desensitization to things that normally um, one might show great compassion or emotion about, um, and unfortunately, it leaks over. You know, it it it, it extends into less than kind bedside manner. Sometimes less than understanding of the patient who can't take seven pills at a time. You know, <laughs> and yes. of each other. Um, and some of that, you Absolutely. know, I mean, some of that occupational hazard, cops have something, some of that, you know, there are any number of professions where that's true. But to the degree that empathy is, is crucial really to, um, to wellness, you know, to a patient who feels cared and, for will get yes. better. And working with cancer, as I do, there's uh, no comparison in the patient experience between a physician who's able to maintain some of that compassion and one who's um, completely removed. It's a complete, it's a totally different experience. So it's, um, I I see the difficulty, you know, hopefully great minds will struggle with that. But in, in these last few minutes, I just, I think you're going to keep writing. Is that correct? Did I hear you say that? Because I hope you, you heard do. Me say that. <laughs> yes. I had a small hiatus between the time I did my March Rising, which is a full length. You put your full length show up as an audition for a run in October. And I didn't hear anything, and I didn't hear anything. So I started working on a new piece. And uh, I have about 20 minutes of that done. Oh, of course, who knows, as the struck, as I keep on writing, whether all the 20 will be there or not. But it's, yeah. um, uh, this time it's the story of uh, growing up um, middle class and black, or Negro, as we were back then, <laughs> um, <laughs> in Manhattan. Um, mm. and I was a uh, third-generation physician, so a doctor's daughter and uh, a family of all girls. So, uh, and I went to all-girls school for high school. So there's a lot um, to unpack there, and it's kind of fun looking at it from such a such a distance, you know, of years, meaning. It, <laughs> it sounds as if it would be and, very and, and rich. Very rich. Now, I, you know. I, I'm sure I'll so hear I'm about it when that, that comes around, too. Maybe we'll have you back on the show then. <laughs> All right. Uh, yes. But, uh, well, I may have to uncover some more. Well, I will uncover more. You know, it's a, your show is good grief, and it's. Um, but there are, you know, there are are there are losses along the way. Always, always. Of course, and that's a good place to end for today. Thanks so much for being with me on the well, show thank today, you so Diane. Much for having me. It's been a 
been a pleasure. And if you want to find Diane Barnes, you can go to dianebarnes415.com. If you happen to be in the Bay Area and want to see the show, it's themarsh.org. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.